From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. It's been said that everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And increasingly, you hear people argue over fake facts. When did a fact become controversial? That poses a pretty big problem for a democracy. Democracy requires a well-informed citizenry, and that process usually begins in school with the help and guidance of a school librarian. California schools, however, average only one school librarian for every 8,000 students, one-tenth the number recommended. So it may not come as a surprise that a recent Stanford study found that students were easily duped by fake news and sponsored content. In short, if children are our future, the future might be very ill-informed. How do we address the alarming rise in information illiteracy, and how do we develop, encourage, and support critical, independent thinking? We'll ask Renee Swank, president of the California School Library Association, State Senator Bill Dodd from Napa, Dan Walters from the Sacramento Bee, and John Myers from the L.A. Times. Convenient untruths, fake news, and information illiteracy. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. If we're going to combat information illiteracy, people are going to have to learn to distinguish real news from fake news. That begins in the school. The question is, are California schools up to the task? Our guest is Renee Swank, president of the California School Library Association. Welcome to the Matter Report. Uh, thank you, and I'm very happy to be here. So let me ask you, you know, what kinds of things do school librarians do? What are they uniquely qualified to teach students? Okay, so the first thing I would like to address is that when we talk about school librarians, we're talking about te- uh, teachers first. So they have their teaching credential, and then they also have an additional credential beyond that. So they're, that, they're called certified as opposed yes. to classified, which would be like a secretary. Correct. Okay. Uh, the issue is that in schools, anybody who works in a library is generally called librarian. And so it kind of complicates the matter. Right. So teacher librarians are qualified to teach information literacy, digital liter- literacy, and digital citizenship. It seems like pretty important stuff. It is very important stuff. Uh, but l- let me ask you this. So, so library services, that's kind mm-hmm. of a, a general term. Does the state, the state require school districts to provide that to their students? What are they expecting them to provide? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, they do provide, in uh, Education Code 18100, they require that schools provide services and that they have a library I- either... Um, on-site or that they're contracting with the neighboring district to provide services. And then in 18, 18103, it tells them that the school should, the library should be open to students and teachers during the school day. But it's more, but it's more than just access, isn't it? it I yes. Mean, access to information, but if you don't know how to use the information, then... Right. Uh, the... Uh, problem is, is that they don't really define what those types of services should look like. And so... That's what we see in the state audit report, that we see that there's all kinds of uh, different types of services being offered in, you know, all over the place. It's very, it's very vague. Yes. Yeah, and so school districts, then they have to fund their library services. How do they go about deciding how to fund library services in a school district? 
Uh, it varies. It depends. It's a local decision. And so uh, in, when we're talking about library services, I'm going to assume that we're talking about both staffing and collection development. That's yes. both print and digital. And so there's a variety of ways that they do that. They can use general funds that's or local control uh, funds. And they can tie it to their LCAP. And just, just, just a, a lot of words here. Just right, so sorry. our audience knows. No, but, but it's important. Um, the governor changed the, the, right. the funding formula a few years ago, and he's right. got this thing called local control funding yes. formula, where they basically send the money to the districts, right. and the districts decide how to spend it. Exactly. Prior to local control funding formula, it was something called categoricals, right. where the state would give the money, but strings would be a patch. You have right. to use this money for this right. project. Okay. So now they get this local control funding formula, the, the district decides how to spend right. it. Do they spend it on libraries? Uh, it depends. Some do. They, uh, each, school, uh, each district has to create their own local control accountability plan. And so school libraries certainly should be surfaced in those accountability plans. And so the CSLA has, we're working on legislation to have, at a minimum, have county offices of education have a teacher librarian at that level so that they can work with their local districts and help surface the a need to put uh, school libraries into their uh, Because those plans, plans. Th- those plans that, the, that they're going to spend their money with are appro- approved by the county office of education. They review them and approve yes. them. Yes. If they have nobody on staff at the county office of education that knows anything about libraries, that might be a problem. Correct. Okay. Um, so that's one way to fund it. That you can also fund it through fundraising, and actually, that's as a parent, I'm well aware of that. Yes, <laughs> and that's where most it, that's where most of the funding comes from. PTA right. is a huge supporter with the school libraries. So uh, support from, your school carnival when it when it shows up. There you go. There you go. Uh, there's also Title Title One funds, which are going to be your federal funds. Mm-hmm. Those are tied specifically to special school populations, and there's. Um, it, depending on how you use your Title I funds, it could be that those Title I funds are tied directly to only a particular group. Right. So I mean, only, most of the funds come from the state. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, let me ask you. So in 2010, the State Board of Education adopted these things called the Model School Library Standards. They focused on uh, uh, accessing, evaluating, using, and integrating information. Right. What does all that mean? Well, let me put it in an easy way for you. Please. It ties up to that information literacy and the digital literacy. But let's break it down to A-E-I-O-U. And so the A is accessing information. That's applying knowledge of how to use a library and also how to use um, web resources, you know, digital resources. Critically important. Yes. Uh, The E is then evaluating the information. Is the information quality information? That includes your print materials as well as any materials that you look at online. Is that news story a real story? So if it's on the Internet, it's true, I thought? Right, right. Exactly. That's that's where we're at these days. Uh, The I is integrating that information. You integrate it into your life. You become Mm -hmm. a life learner. The school library is really that classroom on campus where the student is able to do what they're interested in. And so it's really that place on campus for them. Uh, Originate information so that you're developing your own information, your own studies, and then sharing it out the world mm-hmm. and there's pieces involved with that copyright fair use and then finally using the information and that's organizing synthesizing creating oh 
using information correctly, I guess. Yes. That's the bottom line. Yes. So are California schools falling short, short in that regard? We're going to have a conversation about that in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Renee Swank, president of the California School Library Association, about the level of library services provided to California students to help them distinguish legitimate, factual sources of information from those fake, biased sources of information that are out there. And we talked earlier, the state auditor had a report, um, yes. quite critical, actually, of the state library services offered yes. in California. One of the findings was that the state fails to uh, really clearly define what, minimal, what a minimal level of library yes. services really are. And there's, as we mentioned earlier, wide variation from district to district. So would you like to see us go back to something like categorical funding? Not necessarily. So this is a very complex question, and uh, there, there's really no easy answer to this. So the challenge with the local control funding formula is a lack of understanding from our um, districts and what actually a school library program is and what a strong library program can ser services can provide. Uh, if they've grown up in California, they probably have not experienced a strong library program. And so the, they think of it as a room that houses books and it's much more than that. It's really about information literacy and making people able to use information. So there's that lack of awareness. Uh, the uh, concern around categorical funding, going back to that method, right. is that it requires compliance. And so that's fine for the few years that the, that categorical funding is actually tied to that program. And then it eventually can become absorbed into other programs. So that's one piece. But the other piece is, is that when you have a mandate like that, uh, it's not necessarily that they're going to put into place quality programs. We may still have the same thing over and over again, you know, not implementing strong programs. So that's the... So it's really not enough. Categorical funding, right. that approach really is not enough. Um, you know, the state auditor, auditor was also critical on the lack of monitoring by the State Board of yeah. Education and the County Office of yes. Education. Um, do you think more oversight's needed? Uh, yes. And I want to clarify that. That's really in terms of awareness. It's not more oversight of uh, giving sanctions, but it's more oversight of bringing it, uh, the information out and, and awareness of the audit and using that audit to help uh, have a conversation about where we go from here. And it confirmed what we knew anecdotally, but we need to move it from there. So having the conversations, using the model school library standards along with that audit to have that conversation. You know, the state audit report also talked about uh, the number of certified teacher librarians employed. It was much lower in the state uh, than their state's own standards. The school districts aren't even meeting the state's right. own standards. Um, given, the, given the dwindling number of people that are right. going into being you know, school librarians, can we even attain that statewide goal? And if we, how are we going to attain it uh, if fewer people are going into the profession? So um, I'd like to reframe that question because when we frame it that way, we're never, it, it's an impossibility. We're not going to obtain that goal. Um, if we take it and go with the level of staffing that is called, it's not called for, it's um, suggested in the model school library standards. It's a non-starter. So what we need to do is reframe it. And it's just too big a jump from where they, exactly. what the standards are. And, okay. Right. So I think a better approach is that we take it from, we use these standards, we use the audit, and districts and counties start looking closely at their programs. Where are we at now, and how can we make incremental steps to improve our program? 
Okay, so move toward right. the goal. Okay, let me ask this one last question. So why should the average Californian care if California continues to lag behind other states in their student-teacher-librarian ratios? Why should we care? Well, uh, what we're talking about here is college and career readiness and lifelong learning skills. And so if you talk to higher education, we're sending students to them who are not ready to be information literate. They're not able to do actual research. And so those are the pieces that we provide. It's the things that I believe keep people up at night, parents up at night thinking about, is my child ready for the future? Administrators, uh, are my students that I'm passing on ready to go on to college? And the uh, public, the uh, industry, you know, what do they need? Yeah, well, and I would, I would add, and citizen. I mean, a lot of right. we vote on these things, yet we don't know how to access accurate information. Correct. That's a problem. Correct. Well, I want to thank you for having that conversation thank with you. us. Uh, what does the state need to do uh, to deal with this problem? Do they need to pass a law? One legislator thinks so. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Is the ability to evaluate sources and think critically something that can be addressed legislatively? Our next guest thinks so. He is State Senator Bill Dodd, Democrat from Napa. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you very much. So first, why do you think this is a problem that needs legislative attention? Well, we saw a study, a Stanford study, actually 82% of the middle school students couldn't discern between real news and fake news. In fact, even went so on that 70% or so in high school and even in college had a tough time as well. So we think it's important that uh, this tool be used in uh, schools to identify uh, ways that uh, uh, students can learn. Yeah, and by the way, it wasn't just middle school and high school students. I read the same study, and they found that 50, over 50% of Stanford students right. couldn't distinguish <laughs> mainstream information from fringe source information because the names of the two organizations were similar. One was mainstream, the other was a hate group. Right. And they couldn't, couldn't distinguish over half right. of the Stanford students, which is pretty amazing. You know, uh, President Trump's press secretary, uh, uh, Spicer, recently said that, quote, we can disagree with the facts, unquote. Are facts just a matter of context? I don't think so. I think um, uh, fa- facts are, 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 str- are straightforward and uh, can be verified and, in fact, are verified uh, every every single day. So uh, I don't think it's a matter of context. Uh, what about uh, your proposed bill? Now, there's your bill in the Senate. There's also right. another bill in the Assembly. Um, how do you attempt to address information illiteracy? Well, I think that's one of the things we're asking the uh, Board of Education Curriculum uh, you know, Standards uh, Board uh, to... We're not telling them what to do. We're telling them that this is an area right now they have critical thinking skills in the education curriculum already, but it just hasn't kept up with the digital age. And I think it's very, very important that uh, they start doing that to make sure that these students have all the tools at their disposal. Yeah, and I think what you were talking about was putting it in the social science curriculum. Correct. Um, So, yeah, they actually can think through this. It's it's not If it's on the Internet, it doesn't mean necessarily it's true, right? Or if it's any word, it's true. Right. Um, so, you know, there are probably going to be people on the other side of the aisle, Republicans, that are going to be concerned. Hey, is this just another attempt to undermine conservative views and talk radio? Um, what would you say to them? Well, it was interesting. I was here uh, listening to a podcast this morning on my way in on fake news. And there's, you know, the, the reality is, is 
um, these people that uh, are disseminating these this fake news, uh, they're not necessarily Republicans or Democrats. They're looking for a profit motive. And so, no, I, I, I really believe that this is uh, a bipartisan issue that uh, even though I think during this last, last election, clearly we saw a lot more uh, news that, uh, you know, was certainly – uh, went against uh, you know Hillary Clinton, but uh, and, and and some that went against Trump. I mean, oh, absolutely, you're talking about clickbait here, right? So something looks interesting, and so boom, you want to hit on it. You're absolutely right. So I, I think it's important that uh, uh, students have that ability to be able to discern between what is real and what is fake. Yeah, aren't though the the devils in the details? How do you ensure um, that that doesn't happen? That this doesn't targeted toward one group? Well, I think that's. I, th- this is why I, I don't really um, uh, think it's our place to set the curriculum in the legislature and that we have, uh, you know, an educational standards board, curriculum standards uh, board that does this work and they do it all the time. And uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not worried about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, even good sources, you know, like the American Enterprise Institute or the Hoover Institute, they, they trend right, or the Hoover Institution trends a little left. I mean, people have to know a little bit about kind of the background agendas of these groups. Even though they put out, you know, good information, you have to understand, read it with a, I don't want to say jaundiced eye, but, you know, understand kind of a, a little bit different perspective. Um, so are you at all worried? I'm just going to ask this. It's a very tough question. Okay. This is kind of predicting the future. Are you worried about any unintended consequences here? No, I, I'm, I'm really not. And it, it simply put, uh, we're already teaching these critical thinking skills in our school system right now. And I just think it's keeping up with the digital age. And it, that it's, it's really important that we keep it at that so that they have the tools that they need to be able to d- discern between fake and real news. Yeah, it's really analyzing the news that's out there. And, right. and then you can reach your own opinion. Exactly. Okay. Well, I want to thank you very much uh, for that conversation. Up next, we're going to talk about misinformation. Is it driving public policy more than it has in the past? That conversation in a moment with two long-term political observers, John Myers of the LA Times and Dan Walters of the Sacramento Bee. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So is Internet fake news a greater threat to democracy than misinformation that's been peddled in the past? We've got two long-term capital observers to weigh in on that topic. John Myers with the L.A. Times and Dan Walters with the Sacramento Bee. Welcome. Thank you. So, John, um, there's a growing concern about fake news. Uh, do you see any support for the recent Assembly or, or Senate attempts to uh, have the state, state set standards for K-12 students in terms of learning uh, to analyze information more critically? Learning to be to deal yeah. with stuff they read online uh, with a more you know nuanced approach. Well, we're, I guess for a moment we'll set aside this notion of, of what is fake news or is not. I mean, it's a very vague definition, and it depends on your own particular right. worldview. Um, I think you could step back from that and say the election cycle we just lived through, this presidential election, has a lot of people talking about what can we do differently, systemically. And so to your point about that, that's one effort. There's an effort to, uh, uh, to require more civic education in schools, mm-hmm. another mandate from the state, some would say, but maybe a good mandate. Um, we've even got a bill in the Capitol that talks about uh, Russian interference in the election and teaching kids that, which, of course, another side would say, 
how do you know for sure what the Russians actually did? I think anything that comes out of it that sparks a discussion about how can we stay better informed is a good thing because I think like all like everyone, we get information from so many places these days. And and knowing how to sift that, I think, is probably a pretty good thing. So, Dan, you know, it really comes down to money, right? I mean, if it's a priority, it'll end up in the budget. So do you think there'll be more money for civic education or for getting more getting schools to hire more school librarians to teach students mm, I these skills? somehow doubt it. I think the governor's attitude about schools is kind of, in a way, hands-off. Give them the money and let them decide how to spend it. And so it's, it's going to be mostly up to local districts decide whether to buy more librarians or more books, I guess, for that matter. But uh, yeah, the fake news thing, I, I think we, like a lot of things these days, everybody gets a little too excited about it in a way. And because the, there are some, some studies indicate that the fake news didn't have as much impact, actual impact on how voters voted as a lot of people fear it did. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people are probably smarter than most people give them credit for. And when you start getting into trying to define fake news and the law and teach kids about it, it gets real hinky. I get real hinky about government trying to define what's news and not news and things like that because that just like edges that much closer to some sort of government control of information. Right. Censorship. Is that one step on the road to censorship? So, John, I want to ask you, is manipulation or spinning the facts just part of politics? Well, there's all yeah, – well, okay, so yes. Okay. But, I mean, I think, again, like, I mean, what level of spin is there? I mean, you know, Dan and I and every reporter who covers politics watches people try to put the best face possible on whatever the facts are. What I think we now have found ourselves in the middle, though, is not trying to put the best face on the facts, but what are the facts? Right. And I think that is a different discussion. I think the public has to get involved. I think Dan's exactly right. People are smart, and they can sift through this. But we are in an era now where it's like uh, there's a spin cycle on both sides. And I think that is hard for reporters and the public to get their head around about it's not just your take on this, but on what the heck actually happened. Right, right. Uh, Dan, I want to ask you this. There was a recent headline in in National Review uh, in an article that said, do you want to fix journalism? And the question was answered, start by bringing diversity of thought to newsrooms. Um, is there a lack of political diversity in newsrooms? There probably is. I mean, there's a lack of political diversity in the teaching corps. There's a lack of political diversity in the cops. There's a lack of political diversity in a lot of professions. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any, any, any question that most journalists are probably a little bit left of center, a little on the liberal side. Uh, they are mostly college educated, and they've kind of like more college-educated professionals tend to be that way. Uh, Does it really show up? I think it doesn't show up in fake news, if that's the word. Mm -hmm. I think it shows up more often in kind of determining what is important and what's not important. And there is, I think, a, a certain mindset about this is an important thing, this is not an important thing. And a lot of people believe, and I think with some validity, that their part of society is left out of that thing. I mean, the fact that uh, Trump got so many votes in these upper Midwest states from people who had voted for Obama eight years earlier, mm-hmm. and the media just missed that. They missed it badly. And, and I think that was because they made assumptions based on what they thought in Washington and, and New York rather than really looking what was going on in those places. And I think that's, that's where that 
bias, if you will. It's the idea of the worldview bias rather than any specific sort of thing. Yeah, I want to ask you, we only got about 30 seconds left in the segment, but I want to ask you, John, about, um, you know, this, this partisan divide, you know, if you don't like the, the results, you call it fake news. You, you, now you look at the, the polling for, uh, for the public out there. There was a Gallup poll before the November election. Only 32% trusted you know, traditional news sources. Um, what does the press need to do to regain the public's confidence? Uh, great question. Uh, I'll try to figure it out. I think that we, I think we just have to keep doing a little bit what we're doing and make sure that people understand what we're doing. And I think, you know, maybe reporters don't explain their work as much. I think historically we put it out there and we let people read it for themselves. I think engaging the audience in some ways helps. But the, the biggest thing, you know, I'm going to put the plug in because you got me on the show, Mark. The biggest thing I think you can do is you can pay for journalism. I mean, journalism, there's a price to it. I mean, I can think of two newspapers right now that you could subscribe to. You, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. You, you get what you pay for. Yeah, I was going to say that you get yeah. exactly what you pay for. I want to thank our guests, uh, Dan Walters and John Myers, uh, as well as State Senator Bill Dodd and Renee Swank from the California School Library Association. Up next, is there anyone you can trust to give you the facts about California? Actually, yeah, there is. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. With almost 40 million people, California is a large and complex state, and it's difficult for the average voter to know all the key facts of where they call home. Fortunately, there is one place you can go to find important information about the state and its government, the California Legislative Analyst CalFacts publication. A jam-packed 72 pages of charts and graphs covering every major economic and political issue in California. And it's published by our guest, Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst. CalFax, everything you want to know about California. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Every two years, the California Legislative Analyst Office compiles a comprehensive look at the state in a publication called CalFax. The California analyst, Mac Taylor, is here to talk about some of their findings. Welcome, Mac. Nice to be back, Mark. So let's start with the California economy. How big is it? Uh, it's pretty big. Big. <laughs> <laughs> it's about $2.5 trillion, but I don't think that has much meaning to people. Mm. It's just a big number. But I think it put it in terms that more easily understood. It's, about, it's over $60,000 for every person in California. Wow. And that, if California were its own state, we'd be about the fifth largest, I mean, nation, excuse me. If we were our own nation, we'd be about the fifth largest in the world. Uh, goodbye, France. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, economic uh, output, does it vary across the state? Oh, very much. The real powerhouse region of the state right now, it's the Bay Area. Right. And as compared to that 60,000 average, their per person output is over 90,000. Yeah, it's, it's, I think I was reading your report, and I, I read this religiously, I want you to know that, um, because there's so much good information in here. Uh, 93,599. That's a lot. And you compare that to the San Joaquin Valley, 36,000. Yeah, the San Joaquin Valley and much of the north part of the state is all, uh, just over a third. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's, it's amazing, the difference. So it is true, though, that California uh, is the nation's leading farm state. What are some of the top-valued commodities? We do. Uh, farming is still, obviously, agriculture is not, it's not the, one of the bigger industries, but it still probably makes up uh, over 5% of our total output. So it's still very important, and uh, we're the biggest 
agricultural producer in the country that by is, far. That is pretty amazing, though. You think how big agriculture is in yeah. California, yet it's only 5% of the state economy. Yeah, but that's still, I mean, that's still in a very important uh, piece. And, and uh, as I say, it's, it's much larger than any other state. Uh, we grow a lot of things here. We grow a lot of things, and some of the big producers are milk, grapes, almonds, Cattle, I think, are our top four. Products. And a lot of those are from the Valley. I just, just want to mention that. Okay, so um, President Trump is talking about uh, renegotiating trade deals. Um, how important is international trade to California's economy? Well, again, trade is uh, probably 6 7% of our economy, our exports. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's very important. We're right here on the edge of the Pacific Rim. Uh, and our leading trading partners are, number one, the European Union, maybe would surprise a little bit. Followed yeah, I would think it would be going the other way. Well, Asia. closely follow followed by... Canada and Mexico, mm -hmm. and then Asia, China, Japan, Korea, etc. So, so, so the renegotiating some of those trade deals could have pretty major implications. Yes, it could. Um, okay, what about income levels? You were talking about the disparity between, let's say, the Silicon Valley and the San Joaquin Valley, but what about California generally compared to the United States? If you look at just the top 5% of earners in, in each state, mm -hmm. uh, California's top 5% probably average about 425000 as compared to 350000 in the rest of the country. And they pay a lot of the, We'll talk about taxes in a moment, but they pay a lot of the taxes. They pay a California. lot of taxes. So we do have a lot of very well-to-do. Okay, so let's talk about the other end of the continuum. We're going through a lot of things here pretty quickly, but the other end of the continuum is unemployment and poverty. Uh, it seems like California is really a tale of two states. Uh, you've got the coastal California doing much better than inland California. Is that true? Certainly on unemployment. Uh, in the valley, unemployment rates are still very high, whereas in some parts of the coast, you, you could almost argue they're below sort of a normal unemployment, full, full employment level. So in that sense, I think, yes, you do have two very different sort of Californians. We also have very high housing cost. That isn't so much, a, that, that varies dramatically around the state with uh, high, uh, I'm sorry, I said poverty high poverty rates, uh, which are affected by high housing costs. Right. And that varies throughout the state, but uh, tending to be higher in, in Southern California. Yeah. You know, you were talking about housing. There's good news and bad news there, I guess. Yeah. And the good news is, because housing prices in California are so high, that's a major part of people's wealth. You do mention that the flip side of that coin is it's also a major problem because the cost of housing means what people are spending on housing is disproportionately larger, I would think, than the rest of the United States. So it's leading to poverty? Poverty? Absolutely. As far as the poverty measure and the reason why we have a very high percentage of people in the state under, under a definition of poverty that includes those housing costs is because we have very high rents and very high housing costs. Our home prices are almost two and a half times what the average home price is in the country. Our rents are probably 40% higher than the, than the uh, rents in the, in the United States. So we do have very high housing costs, and that's a, that's a very big challenge for the yeah, state I, going I, forward. I remember years ago when I was when on my honeymoon in Vancouver and went to check out some, it was a very nice city, I went to check out some, some condo units, and they told me the price. I said, oh, that's not that bad. The person literally said, you're from California, aren't you? <laughs> because the prices here really are quite high compared to other, other places. Uh, particularly um, on the coast. So the housing issue, uh, still a big issue. Absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for that quick snapshot of the California economy. What about state and local finances? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute, talking with California legislative analyst Mac Taylor about uh, something they published called CalFax. They do this every two years. A lot of key information there. Let's turn our attention to state and local finances. Uh, so let's talk about the main sources of revenue uh, for state and local governments. How do they differ? Well, they do differ significantly. For the state, we are predominantly reliant on the personal income tax. 
uh, although the state, the state sales tax is our second most important source. Mm-hmm. But those two uh, really dominate the state fiscal picture. At the local level, it's property taxes. You know, that kind of surprised me. I thought it would be sales tax, to be honest. Well, sales tax is still important, but no, the property tax is, is uh, much more significant at the local level. And it is true that, that local government does get some revenue from other sources. The state provides local governments uh, some revenue, and the federal government does as well. Uh, so let's talk about personal income tax, though, for a second. Um, that's overtaken uh, uh, sales tax as the main source of state revenue. Um, and by the way, it's also pretty volatile. So can you address those two issues? Why is it overtaken sales tax, and, and why are uh, personal income tax receipts so volatile? Yeah, if you, if you went back to the 1950s, um, the state was uh, completely relying on the sales tax. Personal income tax only raised about 10% of our general fund revenue. And now it's like two-thirds. And now it's almost just completely flipped. Right. The personal income tax is about 70% of our general fund, and the sales tax is less than 20%. Mm-hmm. And that's happened for a lot of reasons. Uh, part of it has to do with the fact that we do have a lot of wealthy people. The financial markets have do well. We, we tax mm-hmm. capital gains. We have a very progressive rate structure. And on the sales tax side, we only tax tangible things, cars and computers, things you can touch. Goods. We don't tax services. Okay. It seems like a triple whammy then. Well, not a triple whammy. It's just that sales tax still does grow, mm-hmm. but it's a much smaller percentage. Uh, tangi- the sales of tangible goods is a much smaller percentage of overall income in the, in the economy than it used to be. So we don't get as much from money from the sales tax. And you were mentioning that, that uh, tr- ta- I'm sorry, the personal income tax is very progressive. Um, yes. We rely quite a bit on the top 1%, don't we? <laughs> Almost half of our money that we get in the personal income tax in, in many years, especially good years, comes from the top 1% of taxpayers. That's not wage income. That's, that's capital that's, gains, that's right? all in, Well, no, that's all income. It's, it's, it, personal income covers uh, you know, wage and salary income. But the spike, the spike is, isn't it on like capital gains? Um, doesn't that have a big a role to play here? It's because those top income people... Right. rely much more heavily on capital gains. So that means the stock market's very relevant here. The stock market is incredibly relevant for our, our structure, and that's the, really one of the main sources of our volatility. I hope the stock market keeps going up. Um, don't want to look at it when it goes down. Right. So let's talk about corporate tax liability. Um, how is that done over time? Well, I, th- I think a lot of people may not realize that corporate tax is not a significant source of revenue anymore, so it's less than a tenth of our revenues. Uh, and it has not tracked as well with the corporate tax rate. That used to, if you knew profits, you just took about 9% of those profits. Now revenues from the corporate tax are less than that tax rate, in part because we've uh, allowed corporations to claim various credits and carry over loss deductions and things like that. And so we haven't been getting as much money from the corporate tax as we did. So you start with the number, but then you have all these deductions. Exactly. Okay. Um, So another issue is you hear a lot about is, uh, I can't even say it, budget a ballot budget, uh, ballot box budgeting, sorry, it's a mouthful. There's a propositions like, uh, you know, Prop 13 uh, that limited property tax increases or Prop 98 that sets a minimum guarantee for K-12 education. What impact has ballot box budgeting, I got it out, <laughs> had on state and local finances? Well, it's had a dramatic effect on the state. And I don't think anything more than Proposition 13, which fundamentally changed the relationship between the state and the locals limited local, the main source of local revenue, property taxes, and it changed the relationship among the two, amongst the two levels of governments. But I think when you talk about uh, ballot box budgeting, you're usually thinking about how did those initiatives constrain the legislature from acting year to year. Well, that's Prop 98. 
Well, that's in Prop 98, but also think about the various tax increases over the last 10, 15 years that voters have approved. Right. And they've typically been for things, a very specific purpose, smokers, right. millionaires. Somebody else. Well, somebody else, <laughs> but if you think even in Prop 64, marijuana, yeah. there, there are uh, significant increase taxes involved in Proposition right. 64. All of those monies that are raised are designated for certain purposes. The legislature can't use them for whatever purpose it wants. So that's really where the constraints come in. So let's talk about the exp- expense side of the ledger. Um, how much has the state's uh, the state spending over time? Has it increased dramatically, kind of stayed the same? What, what about expenses? Well, certainly state spending has gone up over time. But we like to sort of control for, you know, population growth and inflation. And maybe one simple way to think about it is how has the state's, uh, the state's spending as a part of the overall economy? That is, is it growing faster Mm-hmm. or not. If you go back to the 50s and 60s, 70s, the share of the economy taken up by state spending grew significantly, about 4% to 8% of the economy. But since the, like 1980, it really hasn't changed as a percent of the economy. So it's growing. It's just not growing as a share of the economy. So uh, we've got about a minute left in this segment. I want to ask you two quick questions. One is, what are the major expenses in the state budget? And the second, uh, something about long-term liabilities. What are the long-term liabilities? Are they being addressed? Sure. Well, we spend over half of our budget, our general fund budget, on education, either for schools, community colleges, or the two university systems. And then the other two big pieces are the Medi-Cal program, which provides health care to low-income people, and our criminal justice system, the mm-hmm. courts and, and the prisons. We still we have some large liabilities, mm-hmm. getting close to $300 billion. We're, we're setting aside monies for, to pay off many of those liabilities, like pension costs and our bonds, but we still have to address retiree health care. Just put that in context. What is an annual state budget? The general fund budget is about $125 billion. So we're talking about almost three times, well, not well, quite, two, but two yeah, and a couple half. times. Right, a lot. <laughs> yeah, but if you think about your debt as, as, a, as a homeowner, you might have debts that exceed what your annual income is. Right. The question is, are you're making payments each month to pay them off. So you just don't want those debts to get out of hand of what you can accommodate. Right. Okay, well, thanks for the overview of state and local finances. Up next, education, the largest expenditure in the state budget. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking to California's nonpartisan legislative analyst, Mac Taylor. Uh, California's public education system, kindergarten through college, is the largest in the country. It's also the biggest expense in the state budget. So what are the primary sources of operating revenue for K-12 education? Basically, the state provides most support for school districts. Uh, We raise the money, but we send a lot down to districts. But they're also supported by property taxes and some federal Okay, and I think the breakdown, the percentages I read in your report are 60% for the state, from the state, 30% local, and 10% from the feds. So that kind of gives you an idea where the money's coming from. Let's talk specifically about uh, state funding for education. How much is provided per student, and how is that determined? Well, let's just talk about Proposition 98, which in effect sets up, doesn't set a maximum, but it has generally determined the, the amount that schools have for their basic operations. And there, we're certainly uh, currently spending about $10,217 per student. Sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot. And the way that we do it, we send money down to districts, and they have a lot of control over that. We basically have a target to give every student the same amount of money. However, in addition to that, we give extra money when a child is low income, English learner, or a foster. A little bonus, it sounds like. It's like a 20% bonus. 
Then in addition, a district can get bonus, additional bonuses if their concentration of those particular students is more than 55% of their district enrollment. And this is a bit of a change. Uh, in the past, there was something called categoricals where the, where the state would say, okay, here's the money, but here are the strings attached. Now they're saying, here's the money for this thing called local control funding formula. You decide how to spend it. We're still giving these extra amounts based on uh, categoricals of the past, say, right. you know, low income. It's just that... We determine the amounts, we send the money, they determine how to spend it. Local control. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about um, the, some of the key metrics of education. Teacher pay, class size, enrollment trends. What have you found there? Well, the base, there's a basic trade-off here. We have very high teacher salaries in California, some mm-hmm. of the highest in the country. But as a result, we tend to have some of the highest class sizes mm-hmm. in the state. We typically rank towards the very bottom on that. So obviously there is a trade-off there, right? Uh, and that's the sort of mix that, that we've decided on, at least at this time. Yeah, it, it seems like if, if you lower the pay, then the teachers couldn't afford to live in California, so you have to increase the pay, so the way that that works out is you have larger class sizes. When, of course, that varies a lot by where you are in the state. Right, right. Um, so what about the special challenges when it comes to K-12 education? We have, uh, as we talked about, we have those low-income kids, mm-hmm. which are about 60% of the student body of, in K-12 education. So you obviously have some challenges there dealing with lower-income kids. You have special education, which is about 10% of our students. Now, a lot of those special education is for very relatively minor disabilities, you know, speech impairment and things mm-hmm. like that. But there are some much more serious special education uh, problems that are funded through that special amount. Um, and we also have, um, you know, English learners, too. Right. So, so we have a variety of things that we still but try English to English learners are, are a big part of the school population. I was reading one-fifth or almost 2.7 million uh, students are English learners. Well, there's 2.7 that uh, they speak, can speak a different language at home. Okay. We have about a quarter of our population that are considered English learners, they're not proficient in English. Right. And that's a, that's a very big challenge. Yeah, and that's going to obviously affect school scores, and, and, and when you're comparing California scores made to other states, it, it, it affects that, I would assume. It's something you would want to take into account when you're comparing interstate scores. Yeah, let's talk about California's public universities. Are they very popular to do? A lot of Californians like to go to CSUs and UCs. The California is a little different from the rest of the nation in that we educate more of our college students at public institutions. Over three-fourths go there. So our University of California, our California State University, and our community colleges, who take in the most students, are a very important part of college education in this, in this state. And you look at some of the other states where they might have a public university system, let's say University of Connecticut, that's one public school, but then you've got, you've got some other, uh, like Western Connecticut, et cetera, but then you've got Yale University and Fairfield and you know, Wesley, all these other schools where kids go to. We don't have quite as many of those, it seems like, not, in California. Not as many. Um, okay, what about, uh, how expensive are, are California schools, higher education? Are they a lot more expensive compared to their com- uh, comparable universities? Yeah, I think you really have to break it down by segments. So, for example, okay. on the University of California, our tuition tends to be at the higher end of the range, probably in the top you know, 20, 20 percent mm-hmm. of, of their comparable institutions. It's a very different story for CSU, the state university, where we're in sort of the bottom sixth of tuition costs. A good deal, you would argue. It's a very good deal, and community colleges are the best deal. Right. Because not only are our tuition rates for a full-paying student the lowest in the nation by far. Wow. 
There's about two-thirds of the units that are taken where students don't pay anything. They, they get fee waivers. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to kind of get your two years done. If you're going to get a four-year degree, get your two years done at a community college in California. Are, are students graduating on time? I mean, it used to be you went to school, college for four years. That seems like an anomaly these days. I think we're dating ourselves, Mark. <laughs> right, maybe we are. Uh, if you look at the, how many kids are getting out of UC in four years, it's about 60%. Mm-hmm. For CSU, it's under 20%. Wow. And now we haven't been making improvement in recent years. Those have been edging up, but it's still, I think we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, a lot of like, students are, going, going to, to, are working while they're going to school, which makes it, you know, it takes longer to and get I'm through. And I'm not sure there's a big problem there. I think it's when you have more full-time students who are just not getting through in the time they should. Yeah, well, thanks uh, talking about that uh, overall view of education in California. Up next, we're going to discuss some of the other important state programs that the state delivers, things on poverty, crime, health, transportation, and the environment. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Mac Taylor, head of California's Legislative Analyst Office that publishes CalFacts 2016, a compendium of facts about the state. And we're going through a lot of them. Yeah. Um, education is the biggest expense on the state budget, but there are a lot of other important programs that the state funds dealing with poverty, health, crime, natural resources, transportation. So let's discuss some of those programs. Uh, first up, uh, human service programs, the major ones like SSI, CalFresh, which is food stamps, uh, in-home supportive services, CalWorks. How big are they in, in the state budget, and what can you tell us about those? Well, they're, they're not like crucial pieces of the state budget, but some have been growing rapidly. For example, you mentioned the IHSS, which is in-home supportive services. That's to it, get people to stay at home so they don't have to go to a nursing home. They can kind of stay in their, their own home. Older or disabled people right. who are at threat of being institutionalized are going to a nursing home. Exactly. And that program has grown rapidly, but uh, it's still, as far as spending on it, I'm just... Just looking at the number, it's about $3.5 billion on a budget of 125. And by the way, the population's aging, so there's a lot of people that are interested in these kinds of things. This is, this is one of those programs that does where, where that explosion of baby boomers moving into past 65 did, will have an effect on the budget. Uh, so that's a, that's a growing program. CalFresh, you mentioned, is probably the, the widest used social mm-hmm. service program. Almost 4.3 million people uh, wow. get these. Uh, and there's about, what, 30, 39 million in the state total population? Yes. Something yes. Like that? So it gives you an idea how big it is. That's almost entirely federally funded, though, okay. so it doesn't have the implications on the state budget. And then you have what's called SSISSP. That's just income support to low-income seniors and disabled people. And you have, um, you know, developmental disabled people. We provide a lot of services to live in the community. Okay. So let's, let's kind of transition a little bit to talk about health. Uh, what can you tell us about Medi-Cal? Well, Medi-Cal, which provides health service to low-income people, is is one of our biggest programs. It's probably 18% of our budget. And it's grown significantly uh, as a result. Is that number two to education as terms of expense in the state budget? It's less than that. I mean, 17%. Again, schools are, uh, K-12 schools are probably 40% of the budget. Yeah, and then would that be number two in categories? Would that be the next biggest expenditure? I'm I'm thinking it probably would be. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And this is a program that's grown fairly dramatically over time. Well, you have the ACA Obamacare probably... That has boosted in recent, in recent time as we expanded our, our program. We put more people into Medi-Cal. But it also it sort of encouraged other people that maybe were eligible to, to claim it. Um, so it's, it's a very significant part of our uh, overall budget plan, knowing what's happening in Medi-Cal. Now, you know, a lot of people think, if you ask them, you know, what is the biggest expense of state government, they'll say, oh, incarceration uh, uh, and crime. Really not. Not so. Uh, it's a big expense, but it's like down the list. 
Can you tell us about a little bit about crime and incarceration rates in California? What's sure. going on there? Sure, yeah. The overall, say, corrections budgets, our state prisons, is less than 10% of our overall budget, which is still a significant piece. Uh, it had grown dramatically in the 80s and 90s, but now it's sort of uh, tailed off, in part because we've taken actions to slow the growth of incarceration. First of all, crime rates have dropped dramatically in the last 30 years. And people don't realize that, yeah, histor- we're at historic lows. There's been a little bit of an uptick, but we're at histor- historic lows. Historic lows, and that's true in California, it's true in the nation. Right. But because of the problems we had in our state prison with overcrowding, we realigned many lower-level services down to the counties. And the, just uh, that whole issue with realignment was, according to the courts... We had too many people in our prisons. It was over, over capacity. We couldn't provide adequate health care because of the overcrowded. Okay. And so they had to get rid of, they had to get some of those people out or build more prisons. Or build more prisons. We did both. Right. But we did shift a lot of lower level people to the counties. But mm-hmm. even as a result of that, we still have a lot fewer people that are incarcerated in state prison and even in local county jails. Yeah, because they, they, I don't want to say decriminalized, but they lowered some used to be felonies down to misdemeanors, and, and, and that also had an effect. Let's talk about uh, environmental stuff, you know, water, energy, greenhouse gases. What are some of the key facts you can tell us about natural resources in California? Well, certainly water has been a big issue because of the extended drought. Uh, we hope that we may be getting over that. Uh, but it, it did result in some real negative effects that persist beyond any sort of, uh, you know, above average rainfall that we might have experienced recently. Uh, groundwater depletion, which is very important, particularly in the Central Valley. Uh, the impacts on the state's forest. Yeah, I just want to just talk about groundwater for a second. So they're taking all this water out, and what they're seeing in some places is actually subsidence, where the land actually goes down. And that has implications for roads uh, oh, and yes, for buildings, all kinds of infrastructure. And it's hard to get that stuff back. Right. So you have implications of that for the state's forest. We have a lot of dead trees that, that can have pers- you know, persisting effects over time if you don't take care of issues like that. And then as far as electricity, what you're seeing there is the state is trying to move more towards renewables. Right. We're trying to get to eventually half of our, renewal, of our electricity retail sales that are in effect are provided from renewable sources. And they're moving in that direction. We are moving in that direction, but uh, that's going to be an ambitious goal. You know, one of the big uh, parts of greenhouse gas emissions is transportation, you know, cars. I'm wondering, do Californians love their cars? How much do we drive, and how are those roads paid for? Well, we, we have a lot of drivers. We've mm-hmm. got about 26 million licensed drivers, or I should yes, licensed drivers, which is about 85% of all people over age 16. Mm. So we do like our cars. We drive about 35 miles. What percentage are good drivers? I'm going to ask you that question. So we a drive, lot of drivers. We drive an average of about 35 miles a day. So, you know, our transportation system is really crucial for the economy, for mobility, to get around, for, for our, our lifestyle here in the mm-hmm. state. Uh, the way we finance those roads is typically through gas taxes, taxes on fuel, diesel, gasoline. Uh, although uh, local governments also use sales tax add-ons. Most counties, urban counties in particular, have typically had a quarter cent, half cent, or even mm-hmm. more that are dedicated to transportation purposes. Well, i got a, f- a few more seconds left in this segment. I just want to ask you quickly about bonds. How, what role do they play with infrastructure? Bonds p- provide about three-fifths of the financing for uh, infrastructure. In fact, if you're not talking about transportation, which is funded on an ongoing basis mm-hmm. by gas taxes, bonds are by far the dominant way that we pay for almost all of the other tra- okay. uh, infrastructure. Well, Thol, thank you very much. I want to thank Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, for being here. Covered a lot of ground. Um, please look on their website if you want to see more of this in detail. There's there's a little book. I also want to thank John Myers with the LA Times, Dan Walters with the Sacramento Bee, State Senator Bill Dodd, and Renee Swank with the California School Library Association for joining us. 
If you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.